Welcome to the Real Time Roots Podcast. I'm your host, Christy L. from Joybelie. At Joybelie, we help you grow your own food and remedies and create health and wellness for your family naturally. We have a special guest today. Emily Parrish is a food writer and blogger at fermentingforfoodies.com. She recently launched a cookbook called Fermenting Made Simple, Delicious Recipes to Improve Your Gut Health, which is available at bookstores across North America. So Emily, I love your book. It's, it's beautiful. It's very simple. I love the fact that they made a really simple cover to get across the idea that fermenting is simple. And I love that. It can be very mysterious because we're dealing with, you know, microbiology and the microbiome, and it can be very technical. And your book is very approachable, and I love that. You start out in your introduction uh, describing that the reason you started fermenting was because of health issues in your family, both your own health issues and health issues in your kids. You had two young children with food sensitivities, and you were dealing with personal health challenges. So I'd like to back up a bit and have you tell our listeners your story. Sure. It was 2014 and my oldest son had already been to see an allergist. He had was allergic to sulfites, gluten, and sensitive to sucrose, which was an intolerance. That's a, a lot of a whole lot of food. I was also well. I, I had a gluten allergy, which I still have, and and my youngest daughter. We just started introducing foods to her and found out that she was reacting very strongly to eggs. And I was at my family doctor and being like, "What am I going to do? Like, I can't cook for us. We can't eat anything." And she was the one who suggested that we turn to fermented foods. So that was 2014 and I decided to make a new year's resolution to eat something fermented every day and I haven't looked back since. So do you eat something fermented in every meal or just once a day or how does it work for your family? Well now it's it's more just part of our lifestyle so we don't use milk with breakfast we use milk kefir. We usually have a few things in the fridge that are fermented if we were to drink soda pop, we would have made it ourselves. It's just what we do. All of our bread is sourdough. Yeah, it's just part of it. Where in the beginning, I had to, you know, think about it and stock the freezer up, uh, the fridge up with things that I'd fermented, like, and figure out how to add sauerkraut to it. Now it's just like, hmm, what do we have in the fridge? We'll throw that in. So yesterday, for example, we had chili for dinner. And I had fermented mango chutney in the fridge. And so we added that to our chili and it was perfect. <laughs> and the recipe for that mango chutney is in the book, which is great. It is. Yes, it is. I saw that. I That was one of the recipes that really attracted me. I just finished writing a book about food preservation and I have a mango chutney in my book, but mine is not fermented. And I love that yours is fermented. So when you were starting out, when you were just trying to do something fermented every day, what did you start with? I started with what I saw as the easiest things to add to my diet. So sauerkraut, fermented vegetables, and yogurt. Ironically, it wasn't really the easiest place to start. 
yogurt is actually quite complicated to make, but it was sort of what I understood and knew how to do. My mother-in-law, as you know, is Dukabor. So she had milk kefir grains and we got some from her and that really simplified a lot of my fermentation. I started using milk kefir for everything. And so I have a lot of kefir-based recipes on my blog from that period. However, now I am using all sorts of different fermented foods. Whenever I see something, I just automatically think, oh, here's how I could, you know, take that, ferment it and make it tastier. (laughs) Oh, that's great. That's great. I love how it kind of grew. You started with just a few items that you had to learn how to make from scratch and then it just grew into now it's a lifestyle. That's that's fabulous. In in fermentation or fermenting made simple, you say fermenting is incredibly easy. So what would be the easiest ferment for our listeners to start with? Just if you could just pick one thing. Honestly, I'd go with the mango chutney. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> or really <laughs> really anything that uses a culture that is very strong and reliable. So I know you want a simple, like one shot recipe, but I would suggest that your listeners think of what they enjoy eating and then try that. That's the recipe you will be most successful with because you love it. If you love kimchi, that's easy and reliable. If you love sauerkraut, that's great. If you're into Um, sparkling beverages, make kombucha. It's so easy and reliable. I don't recommend cheese or wine for beginners, but pretty much everything else is reliable. So make what you'd enjoy eating. That's good advice. That's very good advice. Um, I think when I started fermenting, the first thing I did was yogurt because we had goats and so I had goat's milk and I did yogurt. And now I don't do yogurt so much because we're not drinking milk at all. Yesterday, um, I harvested garlic, uh, what are they called? Garlic scapes from the garden and threw them in a jar. And and I I just checked them before I came on this call and um, they're already bubbling. And I just started them like yesterday and just salt. I, I did have a question for you about salt ferment and brine. Is it the same thing or are they different? They are the same thing. So a brine is a salt water mix that we use to ferment. I think if you were just packing something in salt, which there are like some recipes that involve packing, you know, garlic scapies or lemon in salt, those aren't fermented. That's way too salty um, for it to be a fermented recipe. So when we're talking about like, I usually say a salt brine ferment. Yeah. Is there a particular salt that you like best? I use the pickling salt that just comes in at every grocery store. I feel like it's Windsor's pickling salt because it's non-iodized. It doesn't contain any additives. I also sometimes use Himalayan pink salt because that's my regular cooking salt and it's what I have on hand also in my kitchen. Either of those work. I do not typically recommend like typical table salt, it has iodine added, which is great to prevent iodine deficiency. That's why it's added, but it does slow down fermentation and table salt tends to include other additives that help it be free flowing and easy to not clumping up in your salt shakers. So those aren't great for fermenting, but pretty much any natural sea salt or pickling salt will work. 
I noticed that Costco is carrying Himalayan salt now, and the Costco Himalayan salt has iodine added. So just be aware if you're getting um, the big tub of Himalayan salt from Costco that it's not good for pickling. It's got iodine added. Okay. Good, good advice. I had no idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I bought it thinking I could use it for pickling and you can smell the iodine as soon as you open it. So of all the ferments that you make at home, which one is the most kid friendly? The one that your kids always love the best? Hmm. So I decided to give the cookbook out to all my kids' teachers this year. And I asked them to sign a recipe saying that it was their favorite. And I think we handed out four different copies and every single one of them, they signed a different recipe. <laughs> um, so they, they, they're used to fermented foods. They love it all. Pretty much hot sauce is the only thing they wouldn't eat. If you are asking my kids what they preferred, probably when we make milk kefir whipping cream and turn it into pudding or ice cream. Of course, they love treats. They love pickles. And my daughter is really into uh, no spice kimchi that I make. And she's also super into the mango chutney. <laughs> Can't get enough of it. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, my kids didn't really like the hot stuff either. Um, but <laughs> wow, that that kefir ice cream sounds amazing. Yeah, I have a few different re recipes on my website for milk kefir. Is that in your book? No, it isn't, in part because I didn't do milk kefir in my book. The book is entirely recipes that can be made from the grocery store without any added cultures or, or anything complicated. However, on my website, all of that stuff is there. I think I probably have four or five recipes for cultured ice cream on my website, including a vegan one some that are just fruit sweetened, some that are like honey sweetened. I've got all different combinations because we actually make quite a bit of kefir cultured ice cream. Oh, yum. Yum. I bet your kids enjoy that. So mm -hmm. I love that you said that nothing in your book requires a special culture. That's really amazing because a lot of the fermentation books and websites require you to buy, you know, their culture or something special that, so you, you can't just like walk into your kitchen and get started. So with your cookbook, people can just walk into the grocery store, buy what they need, bring it home and get started right away. That's awesome. Thanks. I, I don't know if you know this about me, Chris, but I work in food literacy and I, I did a huge project on food literacy a few years ago for a local nonprofit. And as a result, I'm a strong believer in everybody being able to cook healthy food without needing special ingredients. I do have one recipe that requires wine yeast. It's the hard cider recipe, but that is also readily available in most homebrew stores. Yeah, or grocery stores. Some grocery stores still carry winemaking supplies. Oh, wow. That's, that's awesome. I did not know that about you, Emily. That, uh, that's very intriguing. Is, is that what, what you were thinking about, like the audience you were thinking about as you were writing your book? In part, yeah. I knew that if I wrote a cookbook, I wanted it to be one that would be able to, I guess, attract and help a new audience of fermenters. There is 
quite a lot of books out there on fermentation and I own like a stack of them myself and I'm always excited to see new and interesting recipes but I was thinking of my sister who doesn't ferment but likes to eat healthy and likes the idea of fermented foods when I was writing the book. I wanted to create a book that's for her. It does have some unique recipes for people who have already tried fermenting my particular flavors and dips and doing different things. But my goal was to sort of give a broad overview of all of the different types of ferments and offer ways that people can take their favorite salsa recipe and turn it into a fermented salsa recipe, or they can use the recipe I've provided. I'm hoping to teach and empower people to do their own fermenting. I love that. I love that a lot. Thanks. <laughs> If you're just getting started thinking about using herbs to make something so that you can feel better and start to tap into the natural wellness, I've got the perfect course for you. My course, the Inspiring Botanical Drinks Mixers and Elixirs course. In this video course, you'll learn how to make healthy beverages that will help you break away from sodas and sugary drinks or plain boring water. Even if you have a two or three soda a day habit, even if the kids are home and you keep running out of ice and ideas, even if you struggle to get enough fluids in your body because of the heat, even if you are watching your macros, your carbs, or your waistline, even if you have food sensitivities or allergies, and even if the rising price of food and drink has you making tough decisions about where to cut costs. If you are making more food at home and watching your budget, but go to the same bottled beverages day in and day out, this class will inspire you to up your game in the beverage category with healthy and creative options that are also kind to your budget. So have a look at the inspiring botanical drinks, mixers and elixirs class. You'll find the link in the show notes. One of the things you mentioned in your book is having wild strains of yeast and bacteria in your home. And I found that really intriguing. I'd never thought about fermenting that way before. And of course, it makes a lot of sense the way that you describe it. Can you explain what that is and, and how we can just get the right strains of bacteria so that our ferments are always successful? Exactly. Yeah. When I first started out, I struggled a little bit with fermenting. And I think that is true for a lot of newbie fermenters. The first few ferments, it's a little bit hard. And I think it is due to our indoor air quality. For example, if you have mold in your house, then when you're making fermented foods, they're naturally going to be prone to having a bit of mold in them. You know, like that's more of a risk. I actually have a little section on how to avoid that. But as you ferment, you will slowly bring the good yeasts and bacteria into your home and it will become easier to ferment something the next time. So for example, we maintain two different kinds of sourdough starter, but a gluten-free for me <laughs> and a gluten for everybody else. But I don't eat 
enough bread to maintain and bake sourdough starter frequently enough. So usually I just start my sourdough from scratch when I need it. Where in the beginning it may have taken me like seven days to catch a culture. I can pretty much have a reliable culture within three days now because I already have the yeast and the bacteria necessary to feed and make my gluten-free sourdough starter. It's also one of the reasons why I think fermenting your own food is better than buying a probiotic. When you have fermented foods in your environment, it's you're breathing in the culture. It's in your lungs. It's on your skin. It's the best way to heal your microbiome. When you eat something, it hits your stomach, which is pretty much designed to break down proteins. <laughs> um, and so not as much if any at all, actually make it to your gut. Some of it will, and I talk about how that can happen in, in my book, but in general, you will get, I think, the most benefits from making your own fermented foods versus buying a sauerkraut off the shelf. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You save money by making your own because mm -hmm. uh, fermented food, it's almost like the raw materials are like tripled in price because someone else mm -hmm. did it for you. It's like the difference between buying sugar and tea and, and buying a bottle of kombucha in the store. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. I love what you say about the wild strains giving probiotics to your skin and your lungs because so many people are suffering from you know, skin conditions and itchy skin and stuff. And the probiotics in the air can make a huge difference to somebody's skin. Now, I'm an herbalist and I make salves and I make other things for people like supporting their liver for skin issues. But I hadn't uh, really thought about the air having probiotics in it. I really love that. That, that could make a huge difference to somebody who's struggling with eczema or psoriasis. You recommend in your book about along the same line of having all these probiotics in the air in your home, that if you have kombucha, sourdough, sauerkraut, or other ferments going at the same time, that you store them separately. Um, can you address that? Because I don't do that. I do everything in my kitchen. I ferment on my counters and I don't really move them to, I did when I made vinegar, I moved it downstairs so it wouldn't interfere with my kombucha. But um, other than that, I pretty much do everything in the kitchen. Can you address that a bit? Maybe instruct me on what I should be doing. Okay. So I found certain things will jump and it, and like you said, vinegar and kombucha are pretty close. So I have kombucha in a cupboard in my living room and I have vinegar in a closet down the hall. I just have them get a little bit of different distance so that they aren't kind of jumping into each other and making my kombucha vinegary. That's a great example. Now I live in like probably a 11,000 square foot home. Like it's very quite small, not 11,000, sorry, 1,100 square foot home. <laughs> Uh, quite a small space. When I'm saying stash them differently, I'm just not keeping my yogurt next to my milk kefir because my milk kefir will jump into the yogurt. Um, so there's just certain ferments that kind of cross contaminate. But like all of my vegetable ferments can be in the cupboard with the kombucha. It's not an issue. Milk kefir and other dairy cultures are an issue. If I'm making cheese and I want a specific culture for cheese, I actually like almost wipe down the counters to make sure that the milk kefir doesn't get into my cheese and add a little yeast to it because I don't really want the yeast in my fermented uh, in my cheddar or something like that. Um, uh, some other cultures that 
cross-contaminate, I find. Weirdly enough, gingerbread and sourdough seem to jump from one to another, which is really odd. I don't know why. Maybe it's just the strains of yeast. Um, I can keep my gluten and gluten-free sourdough both out together. I find that when that happens, the gluten-free sourdough kind of dominates, but it's fine for the gluten eaters to have to wait a little longer for theirs to bubble. I I don't know why that happens either. But yeah, so gingerbread and sourdough I keep apart. Other things I don't worry as much. Yeah, I think it depends on how much you're fermenting as to where you have to uh, separate them. Oh, that's great. That's good to know. So I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm just because I don't generally ferment two different vinegars, for instance, or or two dairies at the same time. I'll do one at a time. So that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Talking about that, though. So when you're storing as a method of food preservation, is that a reasonable goal or should we only do ferments like just what we're going to eat up in the next month? I do a combo. So my pickles are nearly all fermented and they just sit in the cupboard for as long as I want them. Um, If I was to preserve rhubarb, I pretty much always ferment it and just leave it. So you can definitely do that. In fact, there's a local restaurant where I live that has like a massive fermentation larder and they are doing vegetables and brine and they just leave them for like a year instead of doing anything, any other kind of preservation. So I think it depends on what you're making. My wine also sits forever. (laughs) That's totally fine. But some things, when they don't stop fermenting, you may want to stash them in the fridge, like your kombucha. It'll just kind of get more and more vinegary, get more and more fermented. I, I would stash that in the fridge just to slow that down to keep the flavor you're looking for. So um, so when you're saying that they have like a pantry of ferments, that's just at room temperature then. There's nothing special about that. No, they actually have it on display. <laughs> oh, Not in amazing. sunlight. <laughs> I know. No, you have to go to the bathroom in the restaurant to just see the wall of ferments. But, you know, it's pretty impressive. <laughs> There's also a salt company where you live that are that are making salt out of the out of the Pacific Ocean. Have you heard mm-hmm. of them? I think Vancouver Island salt. The last ferments I did, I used their salt and it was amazing. Uh-huh. Um, fast, fast ferments. And that, that's what I did the garlic scape with. And I was amazed because usually it takes me probably a day and a half before I see any bubbling at all. And this was like six hours mm-hmm. and I had bubbling. That is interesting. And I find garlic scapes difficult to get fermenting. So maybe there is something in the salt. <laughs> wow. Wow. So when you are storing your ferments, say your pickles then at room temperature, do they last a year or six months or how long do they last? Um, I guess they would last a year. I don't know. We usually eat them <laughs> within, okay. I guess, eight months. <laughs> I've, yeah. I've had sauerkraut that I've done, but I've refrigerated it and it's lasted two years and still been crunchy. I was amazed at that. So do you have any tips to share with people who are wanting to use fermentation, say to preserve, like as a food preservation? I know lots of the, lots of the canning people tell you to ferment it and then can it for long-term preservation, which of course destroys all of the good bacteria. And I don't recommend that, but 
Do you have tips to share? So for food preservation, I recommend doing salt-based, salt brine fermenting, like we've been talking about, because the salt is really great at preventing contamination. Like even if you get a little mold on the top because something, one little sprig of dill was floating, you could just take that off and it will be fine. Everything below the brine is fine. Mold absolutely can't get into salt water. So that's what I would definitely recommend. I would recommend being clean about it. So making sure you have clean jars that have a good fermentation type seal. So like a phyto jar, a high quality phyto jar, not a decorative one that you bought at Ikea (laughs) that has a rubber gasket. You can just close that up and they're designed to allow the little bit of gas to escape, but not let anything in. You can get pickle pipes and airlocks. I have heard of contamination with pickle pipes. I personally don't use them, so I don't really know, but I have heard from readers who had contamination with pickle pipes, so maybe stick with high quality pickle pipes because I'm sure there's uh, cheaper versions out there. And those will ensure that nothing can get in. And then if you use salt brine with the weight, you're guaranteed. And actually, if you just really want to go old school, you could probably do a large container with a weight and just be okay with the idea that there may be mold on it and you have to scrape it off. In my book, you can see photos that I, I struggled. I was doing a whole head of cabbage for the book in a large plastic tub. And I didn't have a lid for that. And all my jars that I would normally pack into are too small to fit a whole head of cabbage through the opening. So I just kept getting mold, but it was okay. And we used it. It was delicious. But I, and I did it several times and every time I got mold on the brine, but the cabbage was fine. It was below the brine. Nothing can get down there. Absolutely safe. I didn't know that um, until I read it in your book, because often people will, you know, how you go onto a site and they'll say, you know, there'll be cam yeast on top and they'll say, Mm -hmm. is this okay? And, or there'll be green furry stuff and people always say, throw it out. And I had no idea that it would be fine if it was a salt brine. Yes. If it's on your kombucha, throw it out. (laughs) It can live like anything that it can get into, it will. And I guess if you had mold on top of kvass, which you wanted to drink, then I would throw it out as well. But otherwise, it's totally fine. It can't get below the salt. That's, that's great to know. Yeah. And cam yeast is also safe. So it's not desirable, but it's absolutely safe to remove cam yeast. Yeah. And it tastes really bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I find it, I always get it on my cider vinegar. I don't know why. I have plum wine vinegar and pineapple vinegar and apple cider vinegar. And it's always the apple that gets cam yeast. I don't know. It just likes it. It's perfect for it. But then it usually dies once it's fermented for a little while. <laughs> See, I didn't know that either. That's in your book. I, I thought that once it was there, that that was hopeless. I've had it on um, preserved lemons when I when I preserve lemons and, uh, you know, it'll be sitting in the fridge and then I'll get cam yeast on it after a couple of months. And then I dump the whole bottle, uh, which I, I guess I don't need to do. So you've, you've saved me money. <laughs> I was going to say, are your preserved lemons sweet? No. 
No, oh, okay. I just do um, salt, salt and brine. I put salt inside the lemons and then I top it up with brine. So they're quite salty. And then I just rinse them before I use them. No, I, I do them in like February when lemons are plentiful and then we use them all year. So it's like near the end of the season and they're getting an air gap at the top of the jar. And Right. Okay. Interesting. So I do about a gallon, a gallon of them every, every like February when they're cheap. If you are ready to start on your herbal journey to get to know herbs and make your own medicine, I've got the perfect next step for you. My membership, the DIY Herb of the Month Club, will help you get to know your herbal allies by studying one herb at a time. And we make a game of it. You will go on a 30-day journey with an assignment to do every day that will only take you 10 or 15 minutes. You'll go on a monthly quest to build your confidence so that you can learn to rely on your herbal allies. You'll invest just five to 15 minutes a day of hands-on guided exercises to gain knowledge of each month's herbal ally. You'll also learn how to grow, forage, or find each month's herb. You'll study the historical context of the medicinal and or culinary uses of each herb. You'll create a personal materia medica for long-term reference. You'll also study the modern scientific studies and evaluate their methodology and conclusions. And you'll engage your senses both logically and intuitively to get to know each herb really, really well so that you can use it confidently. So stir up some recipes with me and start using your new herbal allies for focused hands-on learning inside the DIY Herb of the Month Club. So I hope you'll decide to join me. The link is in the show notes. So there's one recipe in your book I found really intriguing, and that's the sriracha recipe. I don't know if that's how you say it. Mm -hmm. I tried tried to look up how to say it, and there was three different ways on the internet. (laughs) So the reason I found it intriguing was that last month in California, Hui Fong Foods, who are the makers of sriracha, announced that they were halting production because there was a severe shortage of Mexican chili peppers. And so your recipe only has five ingredients, including red jalapenos, and they're available like locally from local farms. And so that'd be a great recipe for people who love hot sauce to get started on right away. It's like about three weeks to have them done and ready to use. And you can stock up now and have them for all season, right? Mm -hmm. So do you have any tips about about fermenting with hot peppers or hot sauce that could make sure that people have success. I do find that hot sauce is prone to cam yeast too. I always get it and I don't worry about it. I let it finish the ferment, scoop off the cam yeast, and then I make the hot sauce anyways. I'm actually still eating the hot sauce from the cookbook because I tested every recipe three times. So I ended up with a whole lot of hot sauce. Um, We're still going through it which just goes to show it lasts. (laughs) I wasn't ever able to find red jalapenos. I don't think we get them here. So I actually didn't use them, but I know that that's traditional. I used green jalapenos. If I use straight green jalapenos, my kids were fine 
with it a little bit. But my husband was like, not hot enough. So I used a combo. I think I write about that in the notes, but I actually don't have my cookbook in front of me about using a little bit of Thai chili or something like that to add a bit of heat if you can only find green jalapenos. I, it lasts really long time. Fermentation is, I think, the traditional way it was made. It adds a lot of flavor, depth to it. It's really, yeah, lasts a long time apparently because I was testing those, you know, like February of 2021 and here we are. It's July of 22. So I'm, wow. I've still got like two jars of hot sauce in my fridge. Amazing. Amazing. So a tip, if all you can get is green jalapenos, but you're getting them from a local farm, if you just hold them at room temperature, they will naturally turn red. I do it every year. I pick green ones and then it takes about two weeks and they'll, they'll start to color up. Once they start to color up, it's very fast, a couple of days and they're ready. But if you get them from the grocery store, they've been refrigerated. And once they've been refrigerated, they will not ripen more. So just a tip, if you can get it from the farmer's market or a local farm, they will turn red if you hold them at room temperature. Just don't put them in the fridge. Thank you. Yeah. I was doing my recipe testing in like February. So yes, no local yes. farms. But <laughs> no, and they would definitely have been refrigerated at that point. One of the things I love in your book is that you show us how to use the ferments. And I confess that I do ferments and then they sit in the fridge. We don't use them because I don't think of them when I'm meal planning. And so do you have some tips that can help us to, to think more about incorporating the ferments into food? I saw that you did like sauerkraut on tacos. I thought that was amazing. Yeah, maybe some, some of the pairings that you do naturally. In your home? So I usually have like probably at least three things in my fridge. So that gives me a little bit of flavor to play with. And when I'm making a meal, I always think, you know, could this use something a little fresh, something a little tangy? I feel like I read a magazine article a few years ago about how people who have trouble digesting their meals need to add something fresh or something fermented to, you know, aid that digestion. So I just always try to think of that. It, it also is great for, I guess, like pairing flavors and texture and just bringing out the flavor of whatever it is you're making. So I just sort of think about how I can do that for my dinners. Like I mentioned, I put the mango chutney on the chili. Right now I also have pickled turnips. So we would put those in a salad. You can always add fermented foods to salads. It's that time of year. With soups and stews, you can always throw a spoonful of sauerkraut or pretty much anything fermented on top of them. And it works out and actually brings out the flavor. A few years ago, we were traveling in the UK for my sister's wedding, and we visited a fermenting seller and educator there, and she served us cream of cauliflower soup with like a fermented sauerkraut, and it was just, it was just so perfect and so what I needed at the end of our day of travel when we were visiting with her. Really, I think most soups, stews, salads can have a fork full of something fermented thrown on top. If you have like more of a traditional meat and potato style meal, you could just use it as like a little condiment on the side. Really, whatever you have in your fridge can probably be added to most everything. And, and then on top of that, you also share in your book how you can uh, ferment 
like ketchup and mustards and things that we normally would use as condiments, but add a little bit of probiotics to them. I like that too. Um, And also that makes it last longer in your fridge, I found. I did horseradish, beets and horseradish, and then I fermented it. And that actually lasted for two years in my fridge before we finished eating it. Yeah. I also like the idea of fermenting condiments because it's like a no-cook way of kind of going zero waste. I mean, you don't have your plastic ketchup bottle. You just pack it all into a jar and you're done. Yeah, that's good. That's good. So we talked a little bit earlier about mold contamination in the house, and some of our listeners do struggle with mold contamination. So I know you're not saying they should avoid fermentation, but is there a specific fermentation they'd be more likely to have success with if they already have, they know they have molds in their house? Right. Yeah. So I also, like, I live on the West Coast, so pretty much everybody has mold in the winter, including um, my house, unfortunately. The best way to avoid mold in your ferments is to, if you're going to do a a long-term stored ferment, definitely put it in one of those containers I was talking about, the one with the fermentation-specific lid that will prevent mold spores from going into the container. I wouldn't recommend starting with something like sourdough. I recommend working up to it. So we have like a lot of good yeast and bacteria. So my sourdough starter doesn't get moldy. However, I will admit that I got sourdough moldy in my gluten sourdough starter this winter. It just happens. But if I keep working at it, it will be fine. But those sorts of open air ferments are more risky. I do recommend fermenting because it's a great way of improving that indoor air quality. If you have mold in your house, it probably does affect your breathing and your lungs. It's right. it's not the healthiest environment. So the more you ferment, the better the rest of your air quality will be. Yeah, that's awesome because some people will have told me, like, I don't want to do it because you know, I'll just get mold in it and it'll make things worse. But what you're saying is that as they do more and more ferments and have success, then some of that, the mold spores are displaced with good bacteria and then it improves the air quality as well. And that's a great kind of organic way to approach the problem while you do the other things like the remediation and cleaning and stuff. And and that will be ongoing if you live in a humid climate like the West Coast or Florida or those places where it's a challenge all the time. Um, I like to leave our listeners with one action step that they can do right now to move forward on the things we've talked about. And what I recommend is that you go and look at Emily's book, Fermenting Made Simple, Delicious Recipes to Improve Your Gut Health. It's available um, pretty much everywhere that books are sold. It's um, I checked Amazon. It's on Amazon. And it's probably at your local bookstore, too. Emily, how can people connect with you? So I have all the usual social media outlets. I'm on Instagram. I'm at under Reading Foodie. I have my fermenting and food there, but I also do other stuff around writing. And I have a Facebook page and a Facebook group. So the Facebook page is Fermenting for Foodies. And the Facebook group is Fermenting for Everyone. I have Pinterest account, 
I, I think that's Fermenting Foodies as well. And then, of course, my website is Fermenting for Foodies, and you can find all my socials there. And I have a newsletter that I send out once a month, and I'm very responsive to comments as well. I'm very good about getting back to people. I feel like that's an important part of the encouragement is to feel like you have somebody there who's got your back, who's willing to help you if you need. So, yeah. Absolutely. So check out Emily's website, fermentingforfoodies.com and connect with Emily on social media as well. And once again, Emily's book is Fermenting Made Simple, Delicious Recipes to Improve Your Gut Health. And we'll have links in the show notes so you can connect directly with Emily. Thanks so much, Emily, for joining me today. And I really learned a lot talking to you, some things I didn't know. And uh, I think when we're when we're doing fermenting all the time or really any kitchen skill you you don't really realize what you don't know because you're being successful in what you do know Um, and it's great to have the additional perspective and to learn more it was fun talking to you thank you so much thank you chris